If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, don't worry, we'll have the words up on the screens, so you should be able to see them. If you've got a Bible and you're wondering, okay, where in the world is the book of Jonah? Well, you're going to look towards the end of the Old Testament, actually after the book of Obadiah. That's where Jonah falls, it's one of the minor prophets, so if you hit Micah and Nahum and Habakkuk, those sorts of names of books, you've gone just a little bit too far. So find your way to Jonah. We're in the midst of a series called Mighty Mercy, highlighting the mighty mercy and missionary heart of our God. It's a four-part series. It's really brief. It's a brief book, so we're just taking it one chapter at a time. So we're actually 25% of the way through the book and the series already. This morning, we're going to look at chapter 2, as well as the last verse of chapter 1. Before we do that, let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord, You are the God of all ages. We sang just a moment ago that we sing praises to You, our Lord, our God, from age to age. And and now, Lord, as we've released children into children's ministry, I pray that You would extend Your grace. That right now You would be with those children's ministry workers that they could articulate faithfully the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And especially, Lord, that You would send Your Spirit, even this morning, to open the hearts of little children to see the beauty of Jesus. Lord, that You would raise up another generation here at Providence who loves You, who worships You, who lives for Your glory. I pray that You would do that now, that You would be with all of those in children's ministry. And that you would be with us, that you would graciously extend your spirit to us and fill us, that we could turn our eyes to the book of Jonah and we could see the greatness of our God. We could see the nature of your character. We could see your mighty mercy and how it hounds us and pursues us to ensure that we wouldn't wander. Do that now this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, look with me at Jonah 1, verse 17 through the end of chapter 2. Hear the holy and authoritative word of God. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and He answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me, weeds wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up, brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay to regard pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Word of the Lord. May He write its truth upon our hearts. Now, this series is called Mighty Mercy, right? And it's because the book is dominated by the mighty mercy of God. And that mercy can be acknowledged by the fact that this isn't just a one-message series. That Jonah is not a one-chapter book, right? Jonah could end with the conclusion of verse 16... And we would be left with a prophet who has rebelled against his God and been justly thrown over the side of the ship and God, using all of those circumstances, has mercifully saved 
a bunch of unbelieving, idol-worshipping sailors. If that's all the book was, you would read it and think, our God is merciful. While he pursues a rebel, he saves others. But Jonah isn't just a one-chapter book. Jonah continues, and God's mercy continues to expand in its might as we behold it. That's what we're seeing this morning. God lavishes grace. He continues to demonstrate His mercy and His compassion as the plot goes on. Today we see clearly that Jonah is delivered by God's severe mercy. And we see a reminder that God's children at times are delivered by God's severe mercy. We're going to see three things in particular. We're going to see as the plot unfolds an intervention unto death. We're going to see how desperation turns to deliverance. And finally, we're going to see the reality of Jonah's testimony that salvation belongs to the Lord. So first, an intervention unto death. We left the story on a cliffhanger, right? They hurl Jonah overboard. And the sea engulfs him. And the sailors repent. And then God takes us right back to Jonah. Jonah 1.17 And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of that great fish three days and three nights. That's the part of the story everybody knows, right? You talk about Jonah and everybody knows about the great fish. The thing is, the great fish is actually only mentioned in two verses. The great fish really isn't that great a character in the story. We talk about the great fish and, and the whale or however he gets called and, and we kind of turn our attention to him. But if we do that, we're actually making a mistake. If you actually read it in the text, it's really brief. It's really one of the great understatements of Scripture, right? Man gets swallowed by a fish in the belly a couple days. Fish vomits him up. Ho-hum. Just like you expected, right? The text mentions it as if it's ordinary. Like that's just the way things happen when guys go over the side of boats. Big, huge catfish come up and swallow you. The drama in our text has to be one of the most incredible scenes in the Bible, right? This is crazy stuff. This is way more crazy than little David killing the giant Goliath. This is even crazier than a bunch of people marching around a city a bunch of times and playing trumpets and massive walls falling. This is a huge fish swallowing a man, and then he lives in the belly of the fish for three days. He survives. He goes on to tell the story. Everything that happens in chapter 2, this entire passage we just read, all of that happens in the belly of the fish. The fish isn't so much a character this morning as much as he's the scenery. It's like we gotta like have the fish's tongue on the floor if we're like playing out the drama. His tonsil is back there vibrating. I don't know if fishes have tonsils. Ours does for the sake of this morning. That's what's going on. But it's understated for a reason. It's as if the author is saying with his really brief mention of this ridiculously incredible story. Don't get distracted by the great fish. Don't sit there wondering what it was like. What kind of fish was it? What color was it? Don't get distracted asking all the questions scholars ask about this fish. Was the fish real? Yes. Was Jonah real? Yes. He's referred to in two other places of Scripture. I think part of the reason it's so brief in the text is because people just knew. They knew the story of Jonah. They knew the story of the fish. The author doesn't have to go into detail convincing you the fish is real. His original audience is like, yeah, I, we know that story. But it's also because he wants you to focus your attention on what happens, not in the depths of the fish's belly, but in the depths of Jonah's heart. As Sinclair Ferguson put it, focus on the great fish and we may lose sight of a great God. That's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to keep our eyes on God. 
We're going to focus on the man inside the belly because it's there in the man that God is at work. So imagine being Jonah, being the guy in the belly. Three days inside that fish. Fish are not pleasant. You don't walk through J.C. Penney's or Herberger's and there's ladies with little things of perfume and they say, would you like to smell the fish perfume? Fish stink. They reek. You handle fish and the scent of it just clings to you. And Jonah's in the belly. All he inhales is the nastiness of fish breath. He's laying in stomach acid. Bile and things meant to break down food. It's dank air. It's dark. Like, utterly dark. It's timeless. You ever wake up in the middle of the night and, and you've lost track of time? You look at the clock and oh, it's already five in the morning. I thought I was going to sleep for like a half hour. Imagine how discombobulated Jonah's sense of time is while he's in the belly of that fish. I got a feeling five minutes feels more like five hours. Three days probably felt more like three weeks. Calvin describes Jonah's experience in the fish as being sentenced to innumerable deaths, like enduring a continual execution. He doesn't get the swift death of the guillotine or the firing squad. He gets the slow death of digestion in a fish's belly. And I can say with absolute, 100% certainty, with total confidence that no one in this room this morning has been in a situation so hopeless or dreadful. I am sure of that. Nobody has had an experience where they've been swallowed by a large creature. We don't know the kind of hopelessness that Jonah was going through. But I think we can imagine. You think he faced a little self-pity in the belly of that fish? You think of who Jonah is, right? What was it last week? What was his cherry gig? He got to go to Jeroboam II, an evil king for an evil people, living next to a neighbor to the north that's the superpower of the ancient Near Eastern world. And he gets to go, and instead of being like all the other prophets who have to prophesy the appropriate doom that's coming to them because of their sin, he gets to go with a message of hope. He probably got invited. Hey, just stick around, Jonah. You don't have, you don't have to go back where you're from. Hang out. Eat off the king's table. Now that proud prophet is in the fish's belly. His fall in 17 short verses has been sudden and drastic. I think it's fair to say he succumbs to the temptation of self-pity. Listen how it says, And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Period. New phrase, new clause, new sentence. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God in the belly of the fish. I think Jonah's in that belly for a while. And Jonah is bemoaning what's happened to him. He's wailing. He's pouting. He's crying. He's expecting death. The implication is he doesn't cry out to God immediately. He flounders in his agony and in his plight. I think despair and self-pity dominate him. But here's the caution. Again and again, we're going to hear this in this book. Don't be a hater. Don't think of Jonah in the belly with his self-pity and despise him. Don't think of how foolish he is. That's the easy thing to do. Consider how you are tempted to be like Jonah. Never been in a fish's belly, but I'm guessing you've had moments of temptation to despair and temptation to self-pity when things don't go according to your plan. Well, if we're careful with that, if we examine Jonah the right way, we'll be able to see our similar hearts this morning. And more importantly, our identical God. 
So how often does life tempt you with despair? Ever been in a situation, maybe like Jonah, that's actually due to your own sin? And then you've compounded the problem by wallowing in self-pity? I can definitely think of a few examples. Well, keep those in mind. Be sympathetic as we keep going. We're told Jonah is in the fish for three days and three nights. Now, that's a special phrase. In the ancient world, you talk about three days and three nights, and it's another way of saying he was in that fish long enough to be definitely dead. Three days, three nights in the grave, that person's dead. We're confident they're dead. Jonah's in the fish three days and three nights. The implication is being, if he ain't dead yet, it's imminent. It's coming. The author wants us to come to the same conclusion Jonah finally faced. He is toast. Digested toast, I guess you could say. In verse 7, he even says, My life was fainting away. You think about that? Like when he says, My life is fainting away. What's it like for him to even breathe in the belly of that fish? How is God even providing air? Is kind of the first question. But then you just think, I don't guess this is like a plethora of pure oxygen. You picture Jonah and he's gasping. <gasps> Breathing through a little straw. He gets desperate. And then you hear in verses 2-3, to I called out to the Lord out of my distress. Out of the belly of Sheol, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. You know what he's saying? I went down to die. Sheol is the place of death. I went down to the place whose bars enclosed me forever. What he's saying is, when I'm in that belly, when when that fish dives deep, I'm going down towards death. Death's about to embrace me in that eternal embrace And he's scared and he's fearful and he resigns himself to what's going to happen. And it's at that point that God intervenes in Jonah's hopelessness. Jonah's discovered firsthand, right, in chapter 1, you can't outrun God. There's no ship fast enough. There's no Tarshish far enough away. You can't outrun him. You can't get away from him. But he's about to discover that that's a very good thing. The fish is not an instrument of God's judgment. It's an expression of God's merciful intervention. If there's no fish, Jonah just drowns. Jonah knows it's his rebellion that started the whole thing. He knows it's the sailors who threw him overboard. But listen to how he describes it in verse 3. Not as his fault, not as the sailors' fault. When he starts to come to his senses, he says, You, God, hurled me into the deep into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. Jonah recognizes ultimately God is behind his plight. God is ordaining everything that's happening in this drama. And that's not a cry of accusation against God. What we see in the prayer is the self-pity is stopping. Jonah's coming to his senses and he's recognizing, you, God, are in control. And I finally realized that's good news. It's liberating. It's a liberating assessment of a reality amidst all the calamity of the sea and the fish. And this irreducible acknowledgement of God's sovereignty in the waves and the fish ultimately gives Jonah hope for deliverance. It starts out with him recognizing God is in control. And that spurs him on as he prays to recognize if God is in control, if God still controls what this fish does, then I still have hope for deliverance. Nothing outside of my God's hand, nothing is impossible for Him to rescue. You see it just in the way He describes it. It says, verse 17, how did the fish get there? The Lord appointed a great fish. How's the fish decide to get rid of Jonah? Verse 10, the Lord spoke to the fish. God knows fish language. And it vomits Jonah out. 
Think of what's loaded in those phrases about God's sovereignty. He doesn't just appoint a fish. He is blowing this boat all over the Mediterranean, and he arranges it that as the sea is tossing, there's a perfect confluence of all the events. So Jonah's unbelief, the crazy storm, the rising fear of the sailors, coming to the point of realizing it's Jonah's fault, trying to row towards shore, it fails. They're rowing towards shore, and they're rowing towards the fish. They get to the moment of panic. They decide, okay, we're tossing the guy overboard. They grab him. They throw him overboard, and here comes the fish. Perfectly by God's design. And the fish isn't just there. The fish is perfectly hungry to swallow a prophet. And he takes him down. The Mediterranean Sea ain't your grandpa's pond. It's a big body of water. And God arranges it all perfectly to save this knucklehead. And Jonah realizes it. God's severe mercy his intervention unto death finally recaptures Jonah's heart. It's describing Psalm 119.67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. You know what the psalmist is saying there? He's describing what Jonah's figuring out. Sometimes God afflicts us in our sin to restore us to bring us back, to show us the error of our ways. God's severe intervention with the mother of all catfish is mercy. It's also a gracious warning for us, isn't it? He's a prophet. Now this is the Old Testament. It's not like today, right? One of the beauties of the prophet Joel is his promise that when the new covenant comes, when the Messiah comes, what's God going to do? He's going to pour out His Spirit indiscriminately. Pour out His Spirit upon everyone. Now, to the Jewish people, they read that and they're like, whoa, you mean you're going to pour your Spirit out on everyone? Like you poured it out on Moses? Like you poured it out on Elijah? Like you poured it out on Jeremiah and Isaiah? Like you poured it out on David? We're all going to get your spirit like that? That's the kind of experience Jonah has as a prophet. He has the unique experience of being filled with God's spirit, of being filled with God's words. He knows God's presence in a way the average Israelite at this point in redemptive history doesn't. And you know what's crazy? Jonah made that ordinary. The prophet had become insensitive. He'd become flippant to the presence of God. He took for granted the privilege of God's Spirit. That's a warning to us. Don't be hardened like Jonah. Don't drift to a point where God's presence seems ordinary seems negotiable. I only care about it sometimes. I had a mentor once who repeated the phrase often, never treat as ordinary what's been consecrated to you. God's presence, God's Spirit as a prophet had been consecrated to Jonah. God's Spirit, God's presence, it's been consecrated to us. To all of us. Here, here's a point of application for that. Mark Dever is a, is a pastor in Washington, D.C. Pastors at a church called Capitol Hill Baptist. Mark's a wise, wise pastor. At a good church. In a lot of ways, we would be really, really, really similar to that church. In some ways, we wouldn't be. In some good ways, right? We're going to raise our hands and worship. His Baptist friends probably won't. But one thing you would notice stepping into Capitol Hill Baptist is the people, because of Mark's leadership, have a sense of the gravity of what they do on Sunday mornings. That they are gathered in the presence of God in a unique way. Now, part of this is just owing to, we're, we're a fairly casual church. I'm a fairly casual pastor. <laughs> one 
one kid in the church actually marveled a couple weeks ago at the wedding that I was wearing a suit and tie. Mommy, <laughs> look at Pastor Matthew. I'm okay with casual. I like that we feel comfortable. We don't have to look like Capitol Hill with suits and ties every Sunday. But we shouldn't take our casual apparel to assume that gives us room to be casual in the presence of God. Now, I want to be clear here. We've got a little baby. People have little babies. I get babies cry. Babies poop. Babies need to eat. Babies aren't controllable, unpredictable. Moms, I don't want you to feel one iota of guilt or condemnation when baby stuff happens and you got to go. And to be honest, there's actually, I think, a grace God pours out on the preacher. I'll have people come up to me afterwards. I'm sorry. But I'm like, I really actually didn't hear it. And I think that's just God's kindness to a guy when he's preaching. But babies aside, most of us can drive a pretty decent distance without having to use the restroom, right? When we really want to get somewhere. When we really care about something, we can arrive on time and promptly and ready. I don't think it's a stretch to make that application here. Jonah gets in trouble in part because he doesn't care about God's presence anymore. He wants to run from it. He wants to be away from it. He's become flippant about this amazing gift he's given as a prophet of God to be filled with God's Spirit, to commune with God in a unique way. So when you think about a care group setting where two or more are gathered in His name, you think about a Sunday morning setting, I don't want there to be a stodginess. I don't want there to be weirdness in the way we come, right? This should be laughter. This should be joyous. This should be happiness all over the place. We call it Sunday celebration for a reason. But it shouldn't be flippant. It shouldn't be irreverent. Does that make sense? Let's keep going. He recognizes what's happened. Jonah reminds us God's chase of him, of us, is determined and it's fierce and it's sometimes painful, but if we are a child of God, it's never without mercy. That's what it means to be a child of, the, of God. When He comes after you, sometimes the way He gets you ain't going to feel good. But it's meant for your good. God is relentless in His pursuit. And so the belly of the great fish is not the darkest pit facing Jonah. The belly was like the grave, and it brought him to the brink of death. But it's primarily a gracious affliction from God that kept Jonah from running. If God doesn't pursue him, if the storm doesn't come, if he doesn't get tossed over, if the fish doesn't swallow him, Jonah's not going to end up in Tarshish. Jonah's going to end up in hell. That's where his flight is taking him. God's severe mercy wasn't meant to drive Jonah away, but to turn his heart back to God. Now, you think about where Jonah's at and what's going on. If you can ever think of a guy who probably has reason to believe the providential judgment of God precludes him from praying, Jonah, right? If there's ever a guy who's thinking, I can't open my, my mouth in prayer right now. I can't come before God for my plea right now. I'm laying on a fish tongue about to die because I'm stupid and I thought God was weak because I'm a fool and I thought God could be trifled with. And now I'm going to go back to God and, and cry out for Him to extend all that might to save me? I think that's part of the reason why it takes Jonah three days. He's battling condemnation. I can't. He won't listen. That's the beauty of the Gospel in this story. Jonah knows he deserves his circumstances. He's accurately acknowledged that everything that's come to pass has come from God's hand. But he doesn't ultimately assume he can't cry out to God. It's the second point. 
Desperation turns to deliverance. Listen to 2 verse 1. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. It's so understated. It is so merciful. Jonah is a sucker. Jonah has done everything wrong. In his sin, he finally cries out, and God listens. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, Jonah says, and you heard my voice. Now here's what's amazing. Up to this point in the letter, you think of everything that's gone on, right? Jonah gets the word of the Lord. He takes off, goes to Joppa instead of Nineveh, hops on the boat. He's on the boat. He's in the middle of the sea. The storm comes. Craziness happens. He goes down and sleeps in the bottom. All the pagans are praying. The pagan captain calls him and says, cry out to your God. He doesn't. They finally cast lots. They realize it's him. He gets tossed overboard. There's a lot that's happened so far, right? There's been a lot of drama going on. You know what hasn't happened so far? The prophet hasn't prayed. Not a single time in the letter up to now. Jonah has been completely prayerless. There's no prayer because Jonah in his sin wants nothing to do with God. But here the intervening grace of God is seen by its effects deep in the prophet's heart. It might be severe, but it's mercy. Because finally... Jonah turns his face back to God. In the pitch black belly of the fish, Jonah for the first time sees with clarity. The terror of death, the death of a man living in rebellion against Almighty God, stares him in the face. He now recognizes it's God's own hand that's come against him. God's sovereignty is naked before Jonah's eyes. He's seeing God's sovereignty like most of us don't think about it. Finally, he's desperate enough to pray. And even that's kind of audacious, isn't it? This whole mess is your fault, Jonah. And now, when you're about to die, and maybe you can tell you're breathing your last breath, you finally pray. Now, you're going to pray and expect God to answer? That's audacious. Even more audacious, God hears his prayer. Want to hear the gospel in Jonah? This idiot sinner done everything against God up to this point. And when he finally relents, God doesn't turn his back. God inclines his ear. Jonah's a great example for us. Our guilt shouldn't inhibit our prayers. It should motivate them. There's still a struggle, though. Jonah prays, and it's like, there's this back and forth as you read the prayer. My agony, God's response. My agony, God's response. There's a back and forth as he goes through the verses. So even as he turns to prayer, Jonah's heart is engaged in battle. He's fighting for the proper perspective. He's fighting in the midst of hopelessness to have hope in a God who's bigger than his hopelessness. He's fighting for faith. He wants to believe and his guilt stares him in the face. The stench of the fish's belly is reeking in his nose. It says in verse 2, I called out to the Lord and He answered me. In verse 3, again, all your waves and your billows passed over me. And then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed over to take my life. Yet you brought me up from life, from the pit. Back and forth. You ever feel like that? You're just fighting. You're just white-knuckling it. You're so close to totally giving up. Even your prayers are kind of a mess. Just trying to keep the right perspective and say the right words. God hears those kind of prayers. God opens His ears to them. The turning point happens in verse 7. When my life was fainting away, Jonah says, I remember the Lord. 
It isn't enough to see your sin and to recognize God's sovereign hand in our lives. We have to do what Jonah does, and that's view it in light of God's character. Towards the end of the book, Jonah's going to say that he knows his God is a gracious God. Gracious and merciful in 4 verse 2. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah remembers that and finally prays. Jonah had forgotten, but God reminded him with a storm and a fish. God regrounds us in the Gospel in sometimes awful, but always gracious ways. We have to find ourselves in Jonah's story because we see here the danger of Gospel forgetfulness. Jonah has intentionally ignored who his God is. And then when things get bad because he's ignored God, he forgets until it's almost too late. Until he's almost to pass into unconsciousness preceding death. The nature of his God's character. That he would relent. Jonah's flight was the ultimate expression of gospel forgetfulness. And the fish is a drastic expression of God's gospel reminder. And we need to think like that. It's why we bring things back to the Gospel so consistently. Because as we sang, and as we're going to close, hint to Seth, as we're going to close with Come Thou Fount, we are prone to wander. But the good news is, Jesus seeks us when we're strangers. He seeks us when we're going away. He pursues us with the Gospel. And what Jonah does here is as he begins to remember, he begins to fight. And he begins to pray. And he begins to ask God, Remind me. Show me. I'm praying. Jonah does. We've heard the phrase before here. Jonah starts preaching the gospel. As much of it as is revealed to him at this point, he starts preaching that gospel to himself. My God will restore me. He's praying according to God's character. Expecting that God will extend grace to him, one unworthy of such grace. And you see it, not just in what he prays, but how he prays. There's a vital shift in how he understands his peril. Verse 2, he says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, for into the deep you have cast me, into the heart of the seas, the flood surrounded me, all your waves and your billows have passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Isn't that like the most ironic thing in this whole, in this whole book up to this point? I am driven away from your sight. Jonah, Ever seen Back to the Future? Hello, McFly! Hello! It's what you've wanted the whole time, man. You've wanted to be away from God. You wanted to be hidden from His sight. Hello, Jonah! And now he despairs. Maybe I actually got my wish. Maybe I've been banished. And now as he sits in the fish, he compares it to Sheol. He's taken to the depths. God's mercy finally breaks through and He follows it up by saying, Yet, I've been banished from your sight. Yet, 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 I will look again towards your holy temple. Just as He reaches the point of hopelessness, convinced He's never going to commune with His God again, God's truth breaks in. The reference to the temple isn't just that Jonah's going to be delivered. It's not that his life's going to be saved. When he says, I'm going to get to the temple, Jonah's saying, you're not just going to keep me alive. You're going to restore me. I'm going to stand before your presence in your place, and I'm going to worship you. Jonah discovers now what he should have known all along. The path of flight from God ultimately always ends in hell. The wages of sin and Jonah's rebellion and flight is sin, if there ever was sin, is death. For Jonah, it's a symbolic death of descent into the pit of a fish. But sometimes flight from God doesn't end just in the pit of a fish. There's literal death and literal hell for those who never relent. Part of the warning of Jonah is to pray. To cry out confess, to turn back. 
before you breathe your last. Maybe you have never done that before in your entire life. You're, you're thinking, word, God's not going to listen to me now. I, I've never even prayed before. Maybe you're a believer and you're aware of the sin you've been living in for the past two days, or the past two weeks, or the past two years. Jonah is a warning. Cry out to God before it is too late. And no matter what the nature of your sin, if you cry out to God and you hide yourself under the provision of Jesus, if, if you turn and ask that God would forgive you because of what He's done to Christ, if you do that, like Jonah, it doesn't matter what your sin is, He will save you. Do it. Before you're actually dead. Now, if Jonah's prayer sounds familiar, it should. He's actually quoting the Psalms, which I think is helpful for us, right? He calls out, he cries out with the content of God's prayer book. So for everything else that Jonah has done wrong up to this point, he's at least done this right. He's at least done what the Psalm says, to store up God's Word in his heart. And so he turns and he starts crying out and he starts referencing the Psalms. He's praying to God in God's own words. He, I think he realizes, my words probably aren't good enough at this point. I've done a lot of things wrong. I'm praying to God in God's words. It consoles his soul and he ends with the word. He ends with the prayer. And as we see it, it exemplifies our final point. That salvation belongs to the Lord. Listen to what he says. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah upon the dry land. What Jonah prays with his mouth, he immediately experiences. You want to know what Jonah is at the end of the day, at this point in the story? Jonah is a trophy of sovereign grace. Jonah is a trophy of somebody who does not deserve to be saved, but God is mighty in mercy, and God will direct the path of history, the size of the waves, the appetite of a fish, to save his man. Jonah's final prayerful explanation, exclamation of hope. Salvation belongs to the Lord is really the theme of the whole book. God is mighty. He is sovereign. And He is sovereign to save. He is merciful. He can save the most hardened sailor. He can save the most wayward servant. He can save, as we'll see in the upcoming chapters, the most evil city on the face of the earth. The Lord has mercy on whom He has mercy. He saves whom He will. He can save you this morning. Cry out to Him. Jonah's prayer is the overflow of a heart that's grateful for God's reckless mercy. God hasn't treated him like his sins deserve. Now, here's the rub with Jonah's prayer. For all its accuracy and beautiful returning to God, it lacks something. If you read the content of what it's saying, it's clear Jonah prays finally with faith and confidence that God is going to act according to his character. But it never answers the question, why? Not, why did you pursue him with a storm and a fish? Jonah knows the answer. That's his own sin, right? But if the seriousness of his sin is belied in the severity of God's intervention, how can Jonah find hope in the covenant love of God. That's what he's hoping. God is faithful to his people. God is faithful. I'll pray and he'll deliver. He's hoping in Jeremiah 31, 3, things like this. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. In spite of your unfaithfulness, because of the way I love you with an everlasting love, I continue my faithfulness to you. In verse 40, I will make with them an everlasting covenant 
that I will not turn away from doing good to them. I will put the fear of me into their hearts that they may not turn away from me. That's the kind of love Jonah's hoping in. The question he's not answering in his prayer is why and how can he hope in God's covenant love when he is a covenant breaker? God doesn't set aside the rebellion. He doesn't sweep the disobedience away. He can't simply ignore it. Jonah's sin, like Nineveh's sin, like all our sin, it deserves to be crushed. That's the truth. You're not going to read that in the comment sections of the Kansas City Star when they talk about things. But when we do things contrary to how God instructs us and calls us to do things, we deserve to be punished for them. The right thing to do, the just thing to do, is for God to extend that punishment to us. What's shocking is that even in Jonah's cry of thanksgiving, he still doesn't fully understand his own need of grace. Listen to what he says. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Really, Jonah? Like, in the belly of the fish, as you're praying, you're really going to throw some stones at the guys on the boat? Like, he doesn't know they've converted. They throw him over, and then they get saved, right? So it's almost like he's in the belly of the fish and saying, I know you can't save those sailors because they worship idols, but you can save me. I just rebel against the true God. You'll see it later in the letter. He doesn't want God to save the Ninevites. And actually, nowhere in this prayer does Jonah specifically confess and repent of his sin. He actually just calls upon God for deliverance. Does he not realize that his rebellion against God's will is no less idolatrous than the explicit worship of false God that's happened in chapter 1? That his sin and every sin is a constant declaration of idolatry. might not be worshiping Buddha, but you're worshiping mammon, or you're worshiping your own glory, or you're worshiping the praise of your neighbor and your coworker, and that all of those things are declarations of your own sovereignty and your own autonomy and your own wisdom directly against God's. And again, here's the gospel in Jonah. God still saves him. He still doesn't totally get it. And God still gets the fish to throw him up. Now, to be honest, I think there's a little bit of God's sense of humor in this. The fish vomits him up. I mean, it's not like he just gets a nice landing on the beach. Think of what vomit is. I can't imagine fish vomit is very pleasant. That's how Jonah ends up on the beach, right? That's how he gets saved. But he gets saved. And the reason for it is found in the shadow cast across the entire book in two simple phrases. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And all the way back at the beginning of our passage, three days and three nights. Jonah assumes he's going to make sacrifice in the temple that's going to acquit him before God. I'm going to get to go to your temple and I'm going to make sacrifices and it's all going to be good. He finds hope in the pit because of God's sovereign grace and salvation, but he has no idea just how personally salvation will actually belong to the Lord. Christ saw this clearly when he declared in Matthew 12, 40. You want to see if Jonah's historical or not? When Jesus refers to people like they're historical, we should probably assume the real story, right? For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You think about this. this I'll do off the notes. That's fine. God's sovereignty in all of this, His planning of the whole story. I'm going to have Jonah, this reckless, crazy prophet, be in that fish for three days and three nights because it's going to be a little whisper of the coming redemption. Not two days, not a day and a half, not a week, three days and three nights because it's going to be a preview. 
when Jonah testifies, salvation belongs to the Lord. It's going to be a preview that it's been my intention from the very beginning that every single time I extend my hand to save, whether it's in Egypt with a bunch of slaves for 400 years, whether it's walking around Jericho, whether it's in the promised land, whether it's David before Goliath, whether it's my people taken away into slavery and then returned to their land, every time I extend my hand to save, whether it's people in Johnson County finally repenting after a lifetime of rebellion, when I do it, salvation belongs to me because of my son. Three days and three nights in the grave. Jonah, because of his own sin, is cast into the deep and describes it like Sheol, like death. Christ, because of Jonah's sin and your sin and my sin, willingly casts himself into the real pit of death. Jonah descends in evil. Christ descends in righteousness. Jonah found no hope by looking to the te- Jonah finds hope by looking to a temple and a mercy seat that's covered with the blood of animals. We find hope when we look to the cross and a mercy seat that is covered by the blood of Emmanuel. God with us. 1 John 2, 1, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. We have a Father who will listen to your prayers. You want to know why, John says? Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins. Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the one who absorbs and deflects the Father's wrath. So when you are in the pit, when you are facing despair, and you realize, finally, I have to turn back to God, the reason He listens, the reason He relents, the reason He forgives... It's because of Jesus. Jonah experienced a horror in that fish that we can only imagine. And Christ experienced a horror that every single one of us deserved. Think about that. We deserve worse than what Jonah got. Jesus went to the pit, to the grave, under the wrath of God for us, in our place. Jonah's cry gets heard from the pit. Because when Christ cried out, the Father turned His face away. You ever think about that? God relentlessly pursues us. He graciously turns His ear to us. He mercifully hears our cries in times of trouble because in the moment of His Son's greatest despair, He chose not to hear because that was the payment for our sins. May Jonah open our eyes. May he shake us from the ungrateful and dangerous nature of gospel forgetfulness. May we never forget the merciful nature of our God. No one heard the lamb's cry because God wants to graciously hear ours. So like Jonah, remember. Think of the pit you deserve. The pit of death, the pit of hell, the pit of separation from God. And like Jonah, remember. But by fixing your gaze on Jesus. Because what is a shadow for Jonah is revealed in glory for us. Hebrews 4.16 Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Not because of Jonah. Because of Jesus. Would you bow your heads?